You're about to listen to the replay of Cowboy State Politics Live from November 3rd of 2022. And here we go. And there's intimacy on the radio and there's naturalness on the radio that can never be replicated on TV. The marvelous resurgence of radio as a political force in this country. News-related radio programming is evolving. There's a huge hole in our dialogue that can be filled by the synthesis of traditional radio and the freedom that comes from a live podcast. You're about to experience Cowboy State Politics Live, and here we go. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to yet another scintillating installment of Cowboy State Politics Live. I, of course, am your illustrious host, David Iverson, firmly ensconced behind the silver Cowboy State Politics microphone and broadcasting to you from the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. Sorry for the little technical glitches when we got started this morning. Evidently, the snow is interfering here at Cowboy State Politics headquarters. Now, you can listen to the podcast on any of your favorite podcasting apps, iHeartRadio, iTunes, TuneIn, really any of them will work. But the easiest way is just to go to the website, CowboyStatePolitics.com. There, you can find all of the shows, as well as any of the articles that I might bring up during the course of a program. If your name is Sleepy Joe Biden, and you don't quite understand why American citizens are not going to vote for Democrats this election season, well, you can go to CowboyStatePolitics.com, pull up an article, and educate yourself, just like you should have been doing from the very beginning, but didn't. Now, you can listen to Cowboy State Politics Live every Thursday morning beginning at 10 a.m., like you are right now. Now, I know that you all probably expected some sort of happy and happy episode with some rainbows and lollipops and the sun is shining and everything is good in the world. Well, this is not that episode. Not at all, actually. In fact, it it might turn out to be a little bit like a gloomy black rain cloud. Yeah. Uh, Considering what the president has been talking about and how our economy and country are going, I think that's entirely appropriate. And in this episode, I'm going to tell you why. But first, let's start out on a happy note. From ZeroHedge.com, in an article entitled, Elon Musk to Fire Half of Twitter on Friday. And I quote, Taking a page out of the playbook, in two days, Elon Musk will finally do what he has repeatedly warned he would do, unleash mass layoffs at the cut at the company he just acquired. According to Bloomberg, the world's richest man will eliminate 3,700 jobs at Twitter, roughly half of the company's entire workforce, in a bid to drive down costs following his $44 billion acquisition. Musk will inform affected staffers Friday, uh, said the Bloomberg sources. Oh, and all those masked snowflakes who previously raged against the previous management's draconian demand to come back to the office? Well, you're out of luck, too. Musk intends to reverse the company's existing work-from-anywhere policy, asking what few employees remain to report to the office. Imagine that, having a job that you actually have to go into work. Now, I realize that, you know, the pandemic and all of that, and all of us were cooped up in our house for months on end. You know, we could excuse that because, you know, companies have to still operate and they still have to make money. But... That was a couple of years ago, and there's no reason to continue that. Musk and his team of advisors have been weighing the range of scenarios for job cuts and other policy changes in San Francisco-based Twitter, the people said, adding that the terms of the headcount reduction could still change. In one scenario being considered, laid-off workers will be offered 60 days worth of severance pay, two of the people said. 
Now, I've had a lot of jobs in my life, and not a single one of them have ever offered me any sort of severance package. But I suppose if you're a multi-billion dollar company and the guy that just bought out the company paid $44 billion, they could probably afford some sort of severance package. Pretty darn generous, if you ask me. With the liberal and tolerant left, quoting again, putting Musk under the financial deplatforming squeeze, the various woke advertisers are pressured by vocal ultra-left radicals to drop Twitter unless the social media platform is fully MSNBC'd. Now, of course, he, they, uh, they mean that Twitter needs to go back to being a platform exclusively of the left, one that that silences the voices of we conservatives. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is it that a company the size of Twitter can't make any money? I mean, certainly a lot of people um, advertise on the platform and just about everybody in the media and in government uses Twitter to get their message out to the public. So why is it that that company can't make any money? Well, I have a, a hypothesis as to why and I'll play it for you. Welcome to a day in my life as a Twitter employee. So this past week, went to SF for the first time at a Twitter office, badged in. Honestly, took a moment to just soak everything in. What a blessing. Also started my morning off with an iced matcha from the perch. Then I had a meeting, so quickly scheduled one of these little pod rooms which were so cool they're literally noise canceling Took yeah we all have one of those at work bunch look how delicious this food looks oh, oh my gosh i was chefs. so overwhelmed then made my way down to this log cabin area i don't know what this is but yeah, we don't know what it is either played some foosball with my friends to kind of unwind a bit um also found this really cool meditation room mm -hmm. that I everybody needs one of those at work neat. um I didn't do any yoga, but they have this yoga room if you were a yogi. So also thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, had a couple more meetings in the afternoon, had a ton of projects that we needed to knock out. So hey to my teammates. Um, <laughs> went to the went to the library to kind of get some more work done. Obviously had you mean they work there? coffee, so wow. made some espresso. And then before leaving for the day, had some red wine um, that's on tap. Yeah. Went up to the rooftop and just honestly enjoyed oh, the beautiful I gotta work there. weather. So awesome trip. Wow. Now, honestly, you have to watch the video. You are not going to believe what happens at that company. I mean, wine on tap, meditation rooms, a log cabin that nobody knows what the heck it is. No wonder why they're not making any money. I mean, really. The very first thing that Elon Musk ought to do is gut all of those rooms, get rid of the personal chefs, the wine on tap and everything. And maybe, and this is just a suggestion, maybe suggest that the people that he writes a paycheck to actually do some work. Back to the article. To be sure, the mass exodus won't come as a surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who would have guessed that? Twitter employees have been bracing for layoffs ever since Musk took over last Thursday and fired the top executive team. Now, he had no reason to do that. I mean, come on. They're only supplying yoga rooms to employees, including CEO Parag, I don't even know what his name, and top censor Vijaya God. Over the weekend, a few employees with director and vice president jobs were cut, while other leaders were asked to make lists of employees on their teams who could be cut. Bloomberg reported, adding that the senior personnel on the product teams were asked to target a 50% reduction in headcount. Engineers and director-level staff from Tesla reviewed the list. Now, why would he do that? Well, maybe because you want the people that run a successful company to evaluate a company that is not so successful and doesn't make any money. Well, anyway, all of us can rejoice that Elon Musk is going to clean out Twitter and hopefully, hopefully turn it back to the free free speech platform that it was originally designed to be. Well, my friends, that's the fun news. Now for the gloomy black rain cloud. Many of you probably neglected to tune in to President Biden's address last night. I don't blame you. That thing was 
a despicable speech. And that's exactly what Fox News referred to it as. In an article written this morning entitled, Biden Ridiculed for Despicable Speech on Threat to Democracy, this is what delusion looks like. And I quote, during his last address before the balance of power would be decided in Washington, D.C., Biden pleaded with Americans to vote against Republicans, accusing them of being election deniers. I don't even know what that is. I mean, do we say that, well, you know, elections don't exist? I don't know what an election denier is. But that's just what liberals do. They throw around words, assuming that you don't know what they mean, and then they say that they're nasty and terrible. Anyway, uh, of them of being election deniers and mega extremists who have encouraged political violence promoted uh, by former President Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election and engaged in voter intimidation. Rather than focusing on the main issues voters are most concerned about, you know, it's the economy, stupid. Rampant inflation and other economic woes, Biden's speech pointed a finger at his political opponents. He noted the assault against Nan House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, decrying the violence and misinformation supposedly fostered by extremist Republicans. Now, it doesn't take it's a rocket scientist to figure out that the guy that assaulted Paul Pelosi, and let's just say right here, that that was a horrible act that should have never happened. The beautiful thing about the republic that we live in is that we can solve our disagreements with debate, debate and discussion. That's how our country is set up. There's no room for political violence of any sort. Now, I realize that the American Revolution started with political violence, but that was not before the, the, our founders tried numerous times to, to talk things over with the king. There were numerous letters that were sent back and forth to King George trying to convince him to ease up on what he was doing to the colonies. Now, all of that was unsuccessful, and so the American Revolution happened. But today, all of us need to, need to denounce political, political violence. Now, I'm not saying all of us need to go publicly and say, oh, it's terrible what happened. But, but when we encounter it, we need to say, hey, man, that's not the way that we handle things. Let's let's debate it. But what President Biden tried to do in the speech is link the guy that attacked Paul Pelosi to Republicans. First of all, the guy, and I'm not even kidding here, the guy was a radical nudist. I don't know how you become a radical nudist. Perhaps you, you protest people who wear clothes. Anyway, he lives in a school bus or lived in a school bus and has Black, Black Lives Matter flags and gay pride flags hanging all over his bus. So I'm pretty sure we can all conclude that he's not a Republican. But this is Joe Biden's attempt, his last ditch attempt to convince people not to vote for Republicans. The Democrats always try to link political violence to the Republicans, when in fact, it's actually the Democrat Party who has a very long history of political violence. One great example is the, K the Ku Klux Klan was founded by the Democrats. In the 1920, at the 1924 Democrat Convention, the Ku Klux Klan held a parade for the Democrats. At the time of the Civil War, going back further, not a single Republican owned slaves. And every single Democrat legislator, excuse me, not a single Republican legislator owned slaves, but every single Democrat legislator did. Okay, so it is not the Republicans that are engaged in political violence. I mean, sometimes that does happen. However, most of the time, it's the Democrats. The article continues. President Joe Biden claimed that American democracy is on the ballot during his speech five days ahead of the midterm elections. Biden claimed recent polls have shown that an overwhelming majority of Americans believe our democracy is at risk, that our democracy is under a threat. In fact, he used the word democracy 38 times in that speech. You know how many times he said republic? And not even close to 38. Anyway, they too see that democracy is on the ballot this year, and they're deeply concerned about it. Well, you know, he is right in sort of a way. American citizens realize that the Democrat Party has been the most destructive force to this nation in a very, very long time. In two short years, they have completely dismantled the American economy. They have pushed American energy to a point where we, we probably only have, I think the last number I heard was 25 days of diesel fuel left. Can you imagine what that's going to do to all of us here in the cowboy state? Honestly, 
everything that we have in every single store is trucked here. So if you didn't, if you thought that there were shortages of things like toilet paper before, you just wait until until we run out of diesel fuel. Not to mention trains, diesel-powered trains, you know, the things that truck goods all across the country. So the Democrats have been very successful in dismantling uh, the economy. Now, interestingly enough, there's a lot of things that President Biden said in that speech that are are really, really pretty frightening. In fact, one of them, he starts talking about price fixing. Now, this one's interesting, and let me just play it for you. The profits are a windfall of war, the windfall from the brutal conflict that's ravaging Ukraine and hurting tens of millions of people around the globe. You know, at a time of war, any company receiving historic windfall profits like this has a responsibility to wait, act. Wait, 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 stop. A time of war? Correct me if I'm wrong, but the United States is not at war right now. We don't have planes bombing the, U- the Ukraine. We don't have boots on the ground. We are not in a state of war. And secondly, companies are supposed to make profits for their investors. They have what's called a fiduciary responsibility to make a profit. Let's listen to the rest of this. Beyond their narrow self-interest of its executives and shareholders. That's their job. I think they have a responsibility to act in the interest of their consumers, their community, and their country. To invest in America by increasing production and refining capacity. Yeah, you shut that all down. They don't want to do that. They, They have the opportunity to do that. Lowering prices for consumers to the pump. You know, if they don't, they're going to pay a higher tax on their excess profits and face other restrictions. Whoa! Well, that's really going to help things, isn't it? If if you force them to pay higher taxes. And by the way, companies don't pay taxes, Mr. President. Um, I don't know if a lot of you know this, but any tax that a company pays is passed on to consumers. That's one of the driving forces in, in increased prices. Companies don't pay taxes. Any expense that a company has has to be passed on because the company has to turn a profit. And they will continue to turn a profit unless consumers decide that the cost for the good that is being produced is too high. So last night's speech was pretty terrible, but really his campaign speech was more enlightening. And we'll get to that after the break. We'll get back to the program in just a second. But first, some completely egregious self-aggrandizement. You can listen to the podcast on any of your favorite podcasting apps. iHeartRadio, iTunes, TuneIn, really any of them will work. But the easiest way is just to go to the website, cowboystatepolitics.com. There you can find all of the shows as well as any of the articles that I might bring up during the course of a program. If your name is Sleepy Joe Biden and you don't know what day pudding day is, I'm not sure that I can help you with that. But you can have one of your staff find an article that tells you why you should have never ran for office. We've all been telling you that for the last 50 years. New episodes of the program are published every Monday, Wednesday and Saturday morning. And don't ever forget about the Thursday live program. You know, the one that you're listening to right now. It's every Thursday at 10 a.m. You can always find the link to the live stream at the website or on the Cowboy State Politics Facebook page. Don't forget about that either. Like it, share it, and follow it and tell everybody you know about it. Of course, I'll post all of the episodes there, but also anything I find during the course of the week that I think you might be interested in. And now, back to the program. If you want to know what President Joe Biden really thinks about America, you don't listen to his scripted speeches because all he's doing is reading off of a teleprompter. And even then, sometimes he screws those up. 
But what he really thinks comes out in his campaign appearances, where he seems to be more, much more loose with what he's going to say. And, and if I was in, in, in his administration, I don't think that I would let him out of the basement. Well, actually, no, that's where the situation room is at. But if you really want to know what the president thinks about you and America, you need to listen to his campaign appearances. So I've selected a number of sound bites to play for you this morning, and then we'll go through each one of them. Now, here's the, the first one that I've got on the list is Joe Biden claims that he created 10 million new jobs. Here it is. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses have gone out of business, closed, bankrupt. But today we're in a better place. 10 million jobs created since I took office. A record in any administration. Oh, really? Actually, the Biden administration hasn't really created that many jobs at all. The 10 million that he's referring to are companies that hired people back after the pandemic. So remember all of us being shut up in each room, which, by the way, Mark Gordon, Wyoming's governor, claims that he didn't shut down the state. Total bullcrap. Anyway, all of us were shut up in our house for two months, and most most businesses couldn't keep paying their employees because if you're not turning profit, you can't pay employees. So most of those 10 million jobs were people that were hired back after the pandemic. Here's another one. Now, before before the break, I played you a piece from his speech where he's saying that, you know, if if oil companies don't lower lower prices at the pump, which, by the way, they really don't have that much influence over. Uh, but if they don't do that, they're going to pay higher taxes. Now, he repeated the same phrase almost word for word in this campaign appearance. Here it is. Yesterday, I made it clear the industry has a choice. Either begin to invest in America or pay higher taxes on your excessive profits and face other restrictions. Now, the truth is that President Joe Biden has taken a, a whole bunch of actions that have increased prices at the pump. And we'll get to those later in the program. But the truth is that most oil companies don't have that much influence over the price of oil. Sure, when they produce a barrel of oil, it comes out of the ground and they're paid the crude price for it. That's what they call WTE crude or sweet crude oil. That's oil that comes out, put, it's put into a barrel and it's sold. That's the per barrel price that you hear about all of the time and the one that the president is always talking about. What creates the prices at the pump is refining it. And now, if you notice, there hasn't been a new refinery created in America since the 1970s. And we've shut down many of those. The Biden administration has increased restrictions on the production of oil and natural gas. And so, Prices at the pump are necessarily higher. Well, here's his next one. Listen, this one ought to make you laugh. You know, you can hear from Republicans. My God, that big spending Democrat Biden, man, he's taking us in debt. Well, guess what? I reduced the federal deficits this year by one trillion four hundred huh? billion dollars. What? One trillion four hundred billion dollars. The most in all American history. No one's ever reduced the debt that much. Did you we catch cut that? cut the federal debt in half. Whoa. Did you catch that? He cut the federal debt in half? Let me play that for you again. We cut the federal debt in half. The federal debt is $31.2 trillion. I checked it this morning. If, by the way, if you ever want to look at it, go to usdebtclock.org. Biden isn't only lying here. He's completely delusional. Now, you could say that maybe he misspoke, you know, debt, deficit, you know, it kind of sounds similar. But the truth is, Biden doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. And if you if you watch the video, when he said that, he walked away from the teleprompters and was talking to someone on the edge of the stage. So not only does Biden believe that he's cut the U.S. debt in half, he doesn't know anything that he's doing. And so the people that are um, that are writing all of these things for him, it's just red meat for his Democrat base. You know, they know that just about anything that Joe Biden says is going to be eaten up for them. And there's going to be huge applause. Secondly, the Democrats know that most people don't believe what the president is saying. So at this point, it doesn't really matter if he's lying or not. 
all of us will just write it off as, oh, he's a crazy old man and he doesn't know what he's saying. Well, that's part, that's part of their game. So now they can allow President Biden to say whatever he wants, and most of us are not going to believe it, and their Democrat base is going to eat it up. Families have more net worth than they did before the pandemic. Fewer families are behind in their mortgages, their credit card bills, and before the pandemic. That is absolutely not true. The net worth of families is going down precipitously. And later in the program, I'm going to get, get to the point where I can tell you why. Most of it relates to the housing, to the housing market. A family's net worth generally is their home. And when the value of your home goes down, your net worth goes down. Secondly, when you factor in inflation, your, the, the amount of money that's in your bank account, and I read a statistic yesterday that it, the inflation rate in the state of Wyoming is 10.1%. So what that means is there's 10.1% more dollars in the market than there were year over year, as, a, as opposed to last year. So literally what that means to you is the money that you have in the bank is worth 10.1% less. Secondly, you're paying higher prices at the gas store, at the gas station, at the grocery store, and just for just about everything that we buy. So it's an absolute lie that Americans have more money in their bank account. I think all of us realize that that's a lie, and I think that we know it every time we go to buy a pizza at the grocery store. But here's another one. Five bucks when I took off this summer. Oh, wait, let me play you the whole thing, and then we'll go back to that one. Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But because of the actions we've taken, gas prices are coming down here at home. They're down $1.25. I've just passed the gas station on the way. $3.25 when it was 5 bucks when I took off this summer. Oh, there's two things there. First of all, gas was five bucks when he took office. Actually, no, that's not true either. Gas was slightly above $2 a gallon when Joe Biden took office. But I don't know if you caught it or not. Let me play you the second one just for a second here. Five bucks when I took off. When he summer. took office. Did you hear that? He, he said five bucks when I took office. And then he said this summer. This is just more evidence that Joe Biden doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, <laughs> here's another one that I think that you're going to get, a, you ought to get a big laugh out of. For four years, he promised infrastructure. It became a laugh line. <laughs> the laugh line is Joe Biden. But I think that you're getting the point here as to what's, what the president is doing. I mean, yes, it's red meat for his base. Yes, he's directly misleading the American people. But he is also, there. his administration is also reinforcing what everybody already knows, that Joe Biden is a crazy old man. When we come back, I'm going to tell you about some of the other things that are creating pressures on the economy. And like I said, you might want to get a Kleenex box because this one's going to be part of the little black rain cloud. Cowboy State Politics Live is brought to you by 307 Cowboy Fabrication. Winter is nearly here, my friends, and don't think that your livestock don't know exactly what's going on. They probably know that you've been leaving them out in the pasture all winter long without a place for them to go and get all nice and cuddly warm. Well, fortunately for them, 307 Cowboy Fabrication can build them a shelter to your exact specifications using materials that are manufactured right here in Wyoming. If you're in need of an animal shelter, call my friends Bryce and Melody Reese at 307-441-1815. That's 307 Cowboy Fabrication. The only thing worse than having cold feet, at least in my opinion, is having cold ears. And if you feel the same way, then you should check out New Trend Hats. They have a wide selection of hats for both men and women, and they're perfect for keeping the tippy tops of your little ears nice and warm. You can check out all they have to offer at NewTrendHats.com. And now, back to the program. 
From ZeroHedge.com, in an article entitled Dark Clouds on the Horizon, Maersk warns about a rapid economic deterioration. Quote, A.P. Moeller Maersk, the world's largest owner of container ships and one of the best bellwethers for global trade, lowered its outlook for the growth of the 2022 global container demand and warned that next year could be worse. Maersk's warning about a slowdown in container demand and economic turmoil ahead was... conveyed in a third quarter earnings report released, this would be yesterday, in an interview by the company's top executive on Bloomberg. The Copenhagen-based company lowered its outlook for the growth of the 2022 global container demand to decline 2.4% or 2 to 4% from the previous estimate of plus or minus 1%. The forecast sent Maersk's, man, that's a hard name to say, Maersk's shares tumbling 6%. Quote, However, it is clear that freight rates have peaked and started to normalize during the quarter, given driven both by decreasing demand and easing of supply chain congestions as anticipated all year. Earnings in ocean will come down in the coming periods. There are plenty of dark clouds on the horizon, the company continued, adding, this weighs on consumer purchasing power, which in turn impacts global transportation and logistics demand. In May, we outlined that a reversal of the shortage of everything bullwhip effect was nearing as skyrocketing inventories, the result of COVID era over over ordering due to snarled supply chains. Now, let me just stop right there and explain what's going on. So during the pandemic, we had a problem in the supply chain. People couldn't get goods to buy them. Now, there weren't It wasn't that people weren't ordering goods, and it wasn't that companies weren't ordering their goods to supply those. It was that the supply chain had broken down because, like Mark Gordon, most governors had locked it, had uh, shut down their entire state, and all of us were resigned to our to our apartments or our houses for months on end. And so, when all of those orders came in to suppliers, there was a glut in the market. So they kept ordering and ordering and ordering, think th- thinking that they were going to be able to sell those goods because there was a shortage in the market. And now there is a glut in supply. The article continues. Uh, the prices of goods would decline as companies would be forced to liquidate excess inventories into a recession. We reminded readers about this a few times over the summer. It's called the bullwhip effect reversal is the major downgrade growth risk. Companies across the board are bloated with inventories. This can be shown in the inventory to sales ratio reaching multi-decade highs, forcing importers to reduce shipments from overseas suppliers. So what's happening is that suppliers have a glut in their inventory. And there's new inventory coming out all of the time. So they have to get rid of what they already have on hand. And so they have to reduce prices. They reduce prices, the company makes makes less money, and you're back to, to influencing um, their economic outlook. That's what this, this container company is saying, is that there is a reduction in the, in the orders for containers because inventories are so high. So it's not just inflation that is impacting the American economy. In fact, it's a number of things, inflation being the number one driver. But here we have a supply chain problem. Secondly, from the Cowboy State Daily, the cow pie. Energy watchdog group compiles list of 125 actions Biden has taken against the oil industry. Quote, in the face of unpopular high prices at the gas pump, President Joe Biden has blamed the war in Ukraine and the greed of oil companies for rising energy costs. Critics in the cowboy state, including John Barrasso and the Petroleum Association of Wyoming, have long contended that the primary driver of the high cost of gasoline and diesel is the administration's policies restricting domestic oil and gas development. The American Energy Alliance, a nonprofit group that advocates for free market energy policies, released a list today, that would be yesterday, of 125 actions, including links to the sources. And I'll post, I'll post the, uh, their list at CowboysStatePolitics.com. But here's just a few examples of what the Biden administration has done to, to, drive down, or to drive up the price of petroleum. And I quote, on January 20th, 2021, the first day of Biden's presidency, he canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. 
A week later, the president issued an executive order announcing a moratorium on new oil and gas leases on public lands. That's probably the one that impacts the cowboy state more than any other, because uh, the vast majority of our economy is driven by, by energy, our extractive industries, coal, oil, and natural gas. Here's another one. In April of 2021, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland revoked policies established by the Trump administration, which included rejecting American energy independence as the goal. All right. Now, they've switched that. If you listen to what the administration is talking about now, they're still saying using the word independence, but it doesn't mean what it used to. What they mean by that is independence from fossil fuels, which, of course, all of us know is absolutely impossible. Here's another one. In October of 2021, the Department of Labor issued a final rule that requires consideration of ESG when evaluating funds for federal retirement plans. ESG is a movement that rates companies on their commitment to various progressive goals. In turn, ESG has pressured investors to steer clear of companies engaged in oil, gas, and coal development. So not only is the federal government not leasing public lands for, uh, for energy producers, now those producers can't get funds to explore those leases. So you'll, you'll hear the administration all the time say that there are 9,000 leases that haven't been used, that they're just sitting on. Well, it costs a heck of a lot of money to punch a hole. In fact, it costs millions of dollars to drill a hole that you're not even sure that you're going to get oil out of. And so not only can companies not lease uh, public lands to produce minerals on, second, they can't get the funding to do it. Here's another one. In March of 2022, the president called on Congress to pass legislation that would enact fines on wells that oil companies have leased from the federal government but have not used in years. Okay, now the, the administration is saying, well, these companies, all they're doing is they're shutting all the wells and they're not producing oil. That's because the production costs are too high and producing that oil is not going to turn a profit. So what companies do is they shut in the wells until the market goes up. A really good example of this is the uranium mine that's southeast of Buffalo, Wyoming. Well, actually, it's it's kind of out of the middle of Boonies, but it's in Campbell County and parts of it are in Johnson County. But it's been dormant for quite some time, and a really long time. And the mine has changed hands um, for three or four companies. I'm not exactly sure how many, but they shut the entire uranium mine down because the market was so low. And now the price of uranium is going up and so that it might become profitable to produce yellow cake again. And by the way, just if you're curious, the mine I'm talking about is the very same one that Hillary Clinton sold to the Russian Russian company Uranium One. Um, I would suggest that you take a drive out there, but it really is in the middle of nowhere and there's not much to see. But the whole point here is that the Biden administration is artificially reducing the price of commodities and then punishing companies that produce those those mineral those minerals or resources, and then we're reducing the possibility of them being able to get funding to produce those minerals, all the while blaming energy companies for the price of the price people pay at the gas pump. You see, not only they're not just doing one action. In fact, it's over and over and over. Now, I'm going to take a quick break, and I know we're, we're ahead of schedule on our advertisements, but this next segment of the program is going to take a while. What I have for you is some audio from Peter Schiff. Now, Peter Schiff is the CEO of Euro Pacific Capital, and it's a really good discussion of what's going on in, in the housing market. I mentioned that before in the program, but I'm going to play you several parts of a recent podcast that he just put out so that, so that you get a better idea of what's happening in, in the housing market and how that affects the economy. So first, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll hit all of that. This segment of the program is brought to you by Morton Buildings. If you're in the market for an outbuilding or a garage or a barn or a roping arena or maybe even a giant warehouse, then you should call my friends Nick and Jesse at Morton Buildings. Their phone number is 307-674-2532. These guys are the experts in metal building construction. 
They've been doing it longer than anybody else around, and they definitely do it better than anybody else around. The truth is, you've probably seen a lot of their work as you've been traveling the highways and byways of Wyoming and not even known it, because their work stands the test of time. So it doesn't matter what type of metal structure that you've been considering, give Nick and Jesse a call at 307-674-2532. My friends, if you haven't noticed, it's snowing outside. And you know what that means? Pretty soon, you're going to be outside shoveling that white stuff. It doesn't make any sense to try to do that job in your slippers. So I have a solution for you. Socks from the Buffalo Wool Company. They're the warmest socks that I think that I've ever tried. So even if your job is the small one of shoveling the sidewalk out in front of your house, or if you're going to go tromp through the boonies and find that confused elk that's still up on the mountain, get some socks from the Buffalo Wool Company. Their address is thebuffalowoolco.com. Do your feet a favor and go check them out today. And now, the conclusion to our program. I'm sure just about everybody remembers the 2008 financial crisis. And the main driver of that, and I think everybody probably heard this term, the subprime mortgage crisis. So what was happening is that lending institutions were giving loans to people who really didn't even qualify for them. And then they were giving the loans at an interest rate that was below the prime rate interest. So what happened is a lot more people could buy houses. And so builders started building more and more and more houses. And when that bubble burst, it created the 2008 financial crash. Now, I'm sure a lot of people lost a heck of a lot of money. My grandfather lost over a half a million in one day. My measly 401k lost $28,000, which, by the way, I was only 20, I think I was like 26 or 27 when that happened. But anyway, I mean, that was a significant amount of money for me. So in 2008, giant financial crisis, we heard President Obama go, go on and on and on about how terrible it was, that this is the largest crisis that we've ever faced as a country. And certainly it was a big one. At the time, I was working for an oil and gas construction company in Virginia. And in one day, we fired pretty much or laid off pretty much half of our workforce. And just about every company in the country did the exact same thing because the economy crashed and nobody was building anything. In fact, when I got rehired about a month later, um, we were looking for work in doing anything, doing municipal work, water, water projects, sewer projects, anything that we could get our hands on just to create cash flow. So the 2008 crisis was a big one. It was terrible and it, it hurt a lot of families. But right now, Peter Schiff is predicting that the crisis we're in right now is probably far worse than the 2008 crisis. So I've got four four sections, four sound bites for you from his podcast. And we're going to listen to one and then we'll talk about it. And then we'll just go back and forth. But I want you to listen carefully. And some of it is pretty complicated, but I think that you'll understand it. So here's the first one. Again, you have a lot of people pointing to the fact that real estate prices are now starting to fall and they think, hey, the Fed is wrong. Shelter costs are coming down because real estate prices are coming down. No, shelter costs are still going up. Even if it's cheaper to buy a home, what's important is how much it costs to own the home. And those costs are going up because even if you pay less, you're still going to end up paying more in your mortgage. Mortgage rates are now above 7% for 30-year fixed. So even if the house costs a little less, the mortgage payment is still higher because you're paying a much higher interest rate. Even if you're borrowing less, the cost to finance that debt is higher Right. So the cost of financing the debt is higher. So banks make money off of giving loans and they tell you, well, we're going to charge you you know, 3% interest, for example. And then when you pay back the loan, that's how they make their money. But when the interest rates go up, so for example, they're somewhere around 7 or 8% right now, 
fewer people are going to be able to buy houses. So for example, I talked to a mortgage lender about a month ago that told me that the the difference between what you could buy before and after a rate increase kind of works like this. So not not what happened yesterday, but the previous increase. That if you qualified for a loan for $300,000, which is the going rate for, for a house in the cowboy state, your mortgage payment would be approximately $800 a month. After the interest rate increase, more likely than not, your, your mortgage payment would be around $1,200 a month. So most home buyers are are your first time home buyers. You know, your your people that get are newly married and they're starting a family and they need their first home. But when when the cost of a mortgage goes up $400 overnight, you can't buy the home. So, you have all of these houses that are sitting sitting, you know, empty and we can't get loans on them. So, it hurts the financial institution. Let me play the second one for you. But not only is it the mortgage payment that's driving up the cost of home ownership, it's higher insurance, higher property taxes, higher maintenance. All of this is increasing the cost of owning homes, and it makes it more likely that some of the people who borrowed money to buy homes aren't going to pay and they're going to go into default. But you know what's going to happen with a lot of the people who strategically decide to stop making their mortgage payments is they're going to do it because they know that they're not going to have to move out of their house right away. Because when you stop making your mortgage payments, you could live in that house two, three, or four years before the bank could kick you out. And during that period of time, you don't have to make any mortgage payments. You don't even have to pay your property taxes because the local government is not likely to foreclose on you because you didn't pay your property taxes. They'll wait for the bank to foreclose and sell the property because then the local government gets to back property taxes right off the top. It's the lender that gets stuck with the loss because the property taxes get paid first. The mortgage lender just gets what's left over. Okay, so this is the same problem that created the 2008 financial crash, or at least part of it. So a lot of people were given loans that they couldn't afford, and then they couldn't pay it back. And so the bank was stuck with not only with the, lo the loan that they gave out, they're stuck with a house that they can't sell. So again, this is just another layer on top of what's happening in the housing market. Now, I've told you in previous programs that the housing market is one of the main drivers of the economy. And when you start to see the housing market go down, even really, really small decreases, it has a giant overall effect on the economy. So again, not only do we have inflationary pressures that are happening ha here, increases in interest rates, problems with the energy economy, now we're having a problem with the housing market in that you know mortgage lenders can't unload the property that they have and secondly even if even when people can't pay their mortgage and like peter schiff said they can stay in their home two and three years until they're actually kicked out then the the financial lending institution doesn't have any income whatsoever Okay, so not only are people not buying houses, can't afford houses, now the people that could buy houses aren't paying the aren't making the uh, the mortgage payment. Here's the third part. And of course, what also happens when these homes go into foreclosure, where the people who own them have lived there for many years without making mortgage payments, they also don't make repairs. Why should they spend money fixing up a house that they don't even own? Whatever money they spend is just helping out the bank. They're not benefiting. And in fact, what they often do before they leave the house is they gut the place. They start selling everything. They sell the appliances. They'll sell all sorts of fixtures that are part of the house. They may have been part of the house when they bought it, but since they own the house, they think they have a right to sell whatever parts of the house they want to and then just kind of leave the lender with a shell of a house because a lot of the value has been stripped out and sold by the borrower. And so when the lender gets their collateral back, it doesn't have a lot of value, especially if you have years of unpaid property taxes. So all of this has the making of a massive crisis. Ha, huh, big time. So now not only are they are banks not making any money because they can't give out loans, People are not are not able to pay the mortgage payment. And third, when when the bank actually forecloses on your house, the house is worth far less than the loan that they were given out on. They were given out to buy the house. And so we have this giant cauldron 
of forces that are creating pressures on the economy. And as we saw in 2008, when all of those forces come to bear, it's going to destroy the economy. And what determines the price of the house is what the buyer can pay, not what the seller once paid. Yes, the fact that a lot of people are going to hold on to their homes and not sell them will help reduce the supply. Okay, so this is a really important one. Now, the housing market in many parts of Wyoming is really, really high right now. If you come to Buffalo, Wyoming, and you want to buy a house, you're going to pay 300, 400. Well, 300 is probably on the low end now. There's a house right across the street from my parents. It's a tiny little house. It's old. It's been there for forever. It's not in that great of shape. And it, and the selling price on that one was $400,000. Okay, so the housing market is high right now. So to get into a home, you're going to pay through the nose. But the problem is when the housing market crashes or when there's disruptions in the housing market, that $400,000 house that you now own is not worth $400,000. So even if you wanted to sell it and move, you couldn't because you're going to take a $200,000 bath on it. Supply of homes on the market, but ultimately the price is going to be a function of what the buyer is able to pay. And the buyer is not able to pay very much when interest rates are high. The buyer can pay a lot more when interest rates are low because what you're buying are the monthly payments, not the price. All of this was a big problem leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. It's going to be an even bigger problem this time because rates were lower for longer. The real estate bubble is even bigger than the one we had back then, but it's combined with an overall bubble in the entire economy that dwarfs what we had in 2008. Ooh, spooky there. So what Peter Schiff is saying is that 2008 would be a dream compared to what he thinks is coming in the American economy. Now, there's one more piece of this that I want to bring to your attention, and the article comes from Breitbart. It's entitled, Breitbart Business Digest, The Journey Matters Less Than the Destination for Powell's Federal Reserve. And I quote, the poet and essayist Mark Ralph Waldo Emerson is often credited advising that life is a journey, not a destination. Federal Reserve Cham Chairman Jerome Powell on Wednesday told us that the Federal Reserve, for the Re Federal Reserve, it is the destination that matters more than the journey. And I quote, the Fed announced on Wednesday that it was raising its benchmark federal funds target 75 basis points. So that's 0.75% added on top of whatever it was before. Uh, this was the fourth straight hike of its size, making this by far the biggest streak of rate increases since the Fed began explicitly targeting the overnight interbank borrowing rate. And what they're referring to there is that banks borrow money also. And so banks have to have on, on hand a huge chunk of money to cover the assets that, they've, that they're involved in. And so what they do is overnight, they borrow money from the Federal Reserve. And though that's the interest rates that he's talking about. It brings the target up to a range of 3.75% and 4% around where the effective fund Fed funds rate was back in January of 2008. Back then, however, the Fed was cutting rates. The last time the Fed hit this level on the way up was back in the fall of 2005. In that cycle, the target topped out at 5.25% in the summer of 2006, and it stayed there for nearly a year. We're way above that now. In fact, we're like 2 or 3% three, two or three above that now. In a statement announcing the hike, the Fed included some language that initially sowed some confusion in the markets. Weird that Jerome Powell would do that. In determining the pace of future increases in the target range, the committee will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy. By the way, the monetary policy that the Fed is working with right now is one that's called modern monetary theory. And if you're unaware of what that is, basically it means that, that a government can print as much money as it can and that inflation doesn't matter. And so with all of the bills that the Biden administration has passed, the, the ARPA funds, the infrastructure bill, the, all of it, okay, they're just printing money. And because they're operating on modern monetary theory as their monetary policy, that's why we're seeing, that's one of the big reasons why we're seeing the levels of inflation. 
Anyway, uh, this lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation and economic and financial developments, the Fed said. Here's one of the important parts. This appeared to mirror some of the language of the Fed's critics, who have argued that because interest rate increases famously affect the economy with long lags, the Fed risks over-tightening it if it waits to see inflation come down before pausing its rate hikes. Equity markets saw this as a softening of the Fed's st stance, pushing stock prices up in the immediate market reaction to this announcement. Now, if you watch the market like I do, yesterday, before, before the Fed's announcement, the market was up four to 500 points. After the, after the announcement, the market dropped to negative 500 points. So what the Fed is trying to do here is they'll jack up an interest rate and they're waiting to see if the rate of inflation decreases before they, they increase, they increase their, their, their interest rate. So here's how inflation works. The government prints in a perfect world. The government prints money and it's supposed to stimulate the economy. I don't, I don't subscribe to this theory of uh, economic stimulus, but in theory, here's how it's supposed to work. So the government prints money and they push that money out into the market. And that gets people to spend more because they have more cash in their pocket. Now, on the back end, what the government does is increases interest rates to pull that money out of the market, thereby in reducing the inflation rate. But that only works if the money that is pushed into the market is actually spent. The problem is what we saw during the pandemic is most people didn't spend that money. They put it into the bank. And so the Fed is increasing interest rates while at the same time printing truckloads of cash. And that's why you're not seeing an effect on the interest rates or excuse me, the, an effect on on inflation because that money is not they're not being able to pull that that money out of the economy. At, a, at the press conference, Powell said that it is very premature to begin discussing a pause in rate hikes. Going even further, the Fed chair indicated that the so-called terminal rate, the highest rate target the Fed will hit with this target, is likely higher than the summary of economic projections released in September. Um, in other words, rates are likely to go higher than Fed officials previously thought. That's because the rate hikes are not having an effect on inflation that people understand that the economy is about to take a dirt nap and they're not spending money. In fact, there's just saving money. And so the only thing that the Fed can do is to increase interest rates. So that has an effect on the housing market. And as we just discussed earlier, the housing market has a huge effect on the economy. So it's one big, it's one big cycle, circular cycle that there's only one way to get out of it. And if you look if you look to history, I mean by the way, I think that administration should hire more historians than they do lawyers. But if you look to history, every single time that this has happened in an economy, it is crap. It is either A crashed and had to be rebuilt or B resulted in hyperinflation. The most recent example of that was in Zimbabwe of 2008. If you want an interesting experiment, just go to Google and type in Zimbabwe $100 trillion bill. Now, now that, that year of 2008 is important because we saw a global economic crash. But at the same time, Zimbabwe, and this is fascinating, at the, in 2008, the Zimbabwe dollar was equal to the United States dollar. So that tells you how much of a rocking economy they had. Of course, you know, economies of scale. The Zimbabwe economy was far smaller than the American economy, obviously. But their currency was worth the same amount. They started spending truckloads of cash on social programs, welfare, welfare and assistance programs, and all of the things that we're doing right now. Within two short years, their bills went, went, from, went to be basically worthless. If you if you do a Google search and you and you search for Zimbabwe dollar versus American dollar, the Zimbabwe dollar is worth a fraction of a fraction of what the United States dollar is. So what I'm telling you is, if you look to history, every single time this collection of circumstances that I've just explained to you has happened, it has resulted in a giant economic crash, one that I'm afraid we may not be able to get out of it.
So I know that this episode has been one big, gloomy, gloomy, dark rain cloud without any rainbows or lollipops, but there are some things that you can do. If you know what's coming, you can prepare. You can can food, you can stockpile food, you can buy things that always have intrinsic value. You know, those things, you know, one of the reasons why everybody tells you to buy gold is in the history of the world, gold has never been worthless. So, for example, if you had a gold dollar, a gold coin, uh, back 150 years ago, what could you buy with it? Well, you could probably buy two pretty nice suits. Now, if you had that same gold coin today, what could you buy with it? Well, two pretty nice suits, really. So it's not the value of gold that goes up and down. It's the value of the dollar. So if you know that a, a giant economic crash is coming, you have to prepare. And one of the, th one of the ways that you can do that is buy things, uh, make sure that you have things on hand that have intrinsic value. Gold, guns, food, uh, liquor is one of those. So what I'm telling you, my friends, is just prepare. We know what's coming. We just listened to an entire episode that where I detailed the all of the factors that are influencing the economy and what's going to happen. So now that you know, the only thing left to do is to prepare. Now remember, you can listen to Cowboy State Politics live every Thursday morning beginning at 10 a.m. New episodes of the program are published every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday morning. From the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming... I'm David Iverson, and this is the one and only Cowboy State Politics.